I was driven out of the streets of Moscow to a dark, bleak, gothic forest and we arrived at his private residence in the middle of the forest and it was surrounded by a two-storey high security wall with snipers all the way along the top and I'm led into the building at gunpoint. So he walks in with a team of advisors, a whole giant entourage of bodyguards and translators. This is now suddenly I have to not be political, I have to be curious and I have to be an artist. And I said, Mr. President, before I document this moment of history, I have a question to ask you. I said, as an artist, I was brought up by my mum and dad listening to the music of the Beatles. And I said, I'm interested to know if you ever listened to the Beatles. There were some confusing looks amongst his entourage. And then in Russian, after his mood dropped, he orders the two translators and all his advisors out of the room immediately. And then he turns to me in perfect English and he says, I love the Beatles. My guest today is an award-winning portrait and documentary photographer who has turned his camera on major political figures, including Vladimir Putin, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, among many others. Over the course of his career, he has produced over 20 covers for Time magazine. And his 2007 photograph of Vladimir Putin earned him the top prize at the World Press Photo Contest. Platon, as he is professionally known, is also the founder of the People's Portfolio, a non-profit foundation which aims to create a visual language that breaks barriers and inspires support for human rights causes around the world. I'm Charlie Filmercourt, and I spoke to Platon at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. I started off just thinking of myself as a photographer because I was fascinated in the human condition. But something extraordinary happens when you're exposed to more and more people and you're curious about their lives and their values. While I'm taking pictures, I, I talk to them, they talk to me. I ask them fundamental questions about you know, humanity, about success, failure, winning, losing, fear, hope. Over 30 years, considering the people I've been exposed to and had those conversations with, it really affects my own direction in life. So gradually, I learned more and more about civil rights and human rights, and in many cases, the abuse of those rights. So I was drawn to that subject. I've become known as the photographer of power. They tell me I photograph more world leaders than anyone in history now. So I've had intimate experiences with the world's most powerful people and the people who hold the most responsibility in their hands. But I'm really proud to say that I now spend most of my time photographing people who have been robbed of power. I like to think that with my foundation, the People's Portfolio, I can give them an enhanced platform of leadership and I can amplify their voices and here's the thing, that's not a favor to them alone or support system to them alone because we need to hear their voices in society for us to have a healthy society. It's not about just being kind and being inclusive, which is obviously very, very important. And that's where we failed. But society needs to hear about the values that these people have who have been ignored because if you really listen to the messages they have, it will help us rebuild this fractured world. So we need to hear their voices. We need to have much more empathy embedded in our leadership 
system. Leadership at this point has always been thought of as power, authority. But actually, to be a great leader, you have to think of yourself as a servant of the people. And that's an upside-down way of looking at leadership. But it's the way I see it. The greatest leaders in history, and there's not many, are the ones who thought of themselves, firstly and foremost, as servants of the people. And if you keep your feet on the ground in that humble, curious way, it allows you to be much more agile in your leadership role. And you can adjust very quickly to a changing world filled with crisis. You know, a, a woman who is very poor in America, who's got three children and helping them survive, getting them to school every day, getting them fed, I mean, that's a leader. That's a proper leader. And if she could speak and she was given an amplification, she's probably got many of the solutions up her sleeve that most leaders I speak to in the power system have no idea how to navigate. Today, you were here to talk about, I guess, the difficulties that the culture industries have faced over the last few years and, and where we can take this and you know what opportunities there are, but also how we can support those people who have admittedly had a, a difficult couple of years, especially those who, whether it's an in-person performance, musicians, theatres, these things have, have really, really struggled due to the COVID pandemic. Just how difficult have you seen, I guess, as part of the industry? What difficulties have you seen and how have you found people reacting and dealing to it? Well, artists is a long tradition of not supporting artists. I mean, Van Gogh died as a complete failure. He never sold one painting other than to his brother who supported him out of love. But if you're going to judge Van Gogh at the time, he had no support from anybody and no one thought of him as a, an important part of society. On the contrary, they thought of him as a drain on society. Mozart was buried in a communal grave. Even Picasso became one of the wealthiest, most celebrated artists when he painted Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, the first Cubist painting. You could say the first modern art painting. I mean, he was laughed at. He was poor. Everyone wrote him off. There's a long tradition of artists being disregarded. If you think about art now, I mean, one of the greatest art forms for me personally is street art because it's the perfect manifestation of creative people not having a voice in the system and just taking to the streets. It's pure. And that's why people respond so much to it because it's authentic. That's speaking from their heart. It doesn't mean it's fair and it doesn't mean it's right. But society needs to hear from artists because we hold up a mirror to society and we help society understand itself. Even in the system that I was in, the whole thing started to dismantle. The issues that I cared deeply about as an artist, that I was drawn to, as I said, human rights, civil rights around the world, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, these are very powerful racism in society. These are very powerful issues that we are failing to deal with. And I would go to all the magazines that I had collaborated with over many, many years, but generally the magazine editors were not particularly interested in covering the issues that I wanted to cover. So the, it seems to me the important issues are sort of not discussed for fear of um, not inspiring people. Or, so I had to figure out another way. So I set up my own foundation. It took me years 
I had to get a board of directors, I had to create the infrastructure for a 501c3 registered organisation. There was no formula to do this, it's based on storytelling. So now I'm not a burden on anyone. If I collaborate with my friends at Human Rights Watch or the United Nations, I can say, give me your data, give me your stories, and I will bring them to life. I've raised my own money because I know many wealthy people who care deeply about the state of the world, contrary to popular belief. And there are people who want to do something that's useful with their money, that's important, that heals society and brings people back together. So we raise our own money. I'm able then to go back to NGOs, collaborate with them, partner with them, help amplify the data, bring it to life. And then I go back to my friends in the media and I say, I've got a project that cost a lot of money that you would never normally invest in or maybe you couldn't invest in. You don't have those resources, but it's done and paid for. And I would like to offer it to you to see if you'd like to run it. And here's the important thing. I think it's important to show people who have struggled in society to not just show them as victims, even though they have been victimized. I think we need to change the narrative. To me, someone who has made it through hard times is an absolute hero, and they know what it is to lose. They have something to say about overcoming adversity, something that now we've all been through the pandemic, we all know what that is. What's noticeable with your work, particularly when you, when you look at it on the people's portfolio, is that you're framing and you're giving these people the same opportunities that you are, say, Obama, Clinton. They're, you know, you're shooting them in, them in a similar style. You're giving them that exact same thought process. And I guess that demonstrates the fact that, you know, that exactly what you're saying there. You want to show these people not as victims, but just, you know, as you would anyone else. It's respect. It's respect. But, you know, I can't tell you, when someone steps into my studio space, there's nothing there. There's a white background. There's a little white apple box that everyone sits on. This is the box that all those heads of state and government have also sat on, whether it's Michelle Obama, whether it's Putin, whether it's Gaddafi, whether it's Berlusconi. Many of our British prime ministers have sat on that box. And then you invite someone who's homeless to sit on that box or a former political prisoner or someone who's suffered from racism in society and they sit on the box. Something happens, man. It's very, very powerful because they feel this elevated platform of leadership and it gives amplification to their voice. And I have to be very, very careful about how I navigate this moment because the worst thing I could do is speak for them. My job is to amplify their voice on their terms and be curious and ask questions and listen to them and not just make assumptions but to actually ask about winning and losing and fears and hopes. And the things they tell me are just incredible. There was a lady I photographed who was eight and a half months pregnant in, on the streets of Philadelphia and she was an undocumented immigrant so she had come across the border fleeing gang violence and abject poverty and yet she was pregnant you can imagine the vulnerability crossing the border dealing with covid dealing with america's 
sort of anti-immigrant narrative. And on top of that, there's the healthcare situation where she's pregnant and she doesn't have access to a doctor. Where is she going to have a baby? So I said to her, she sat on the box, and I said to her, what would you say to people in America who don't want you here? And she said, God should bless them. To be able to reach out the hand of compassion, the hand of friendship to your opponents when you have lost everything shows such extraordinary strength. And I have never seen that from any of our world leaders. I have never seen that. And yet I saw it from this lady who no one knows she even exists. And at the end of the shoot, I said to her, I want to thank you for sharing your story with me. I said, I'm deeply moved. And she said, no, you are mistaken. It is I that need to thank you. And obviously you've moved into this field having done a lot of work politically, those famous time covers known around the world. You mentioned it in in the discussion earlier, but I think it's impossible not to talk about Putin at the moment. That iconic image that we've seen thousands of times and in many different forms as well, as you touched on. But how do you reflect on that image now and the process of making it? I guess, you know, surely over the last couple of months, it's probably been in your mind quite a lot. I mean, I've been asked a lot about the Putin experience, especially recently. It was the first time I'd ever photographed, you know, power on that level and intimidation on that level. I mean, now I'm a bit of an old hand at it and I see through it. Martin Luther King always said, beware of the illusion of supremacy. So anyone who tries to flex muscles with me politically, socially, culturally, I can't help seeing it through it because I have a healthy disregard for power and authority. But having said all that, this was intimidating. And I won't lie, I was driven out of the streets of Moscow to a dark, bleak, gothic forest. And we arrived at his private residence in the middle of the forest, which was his dasha. And it was surrounded by a two-story high security wall with snipers all the way along the top. And I'm led into the building at gunpoint. I'm led into a very historically important room. This is where I was told they partly dissolved the Soviet Union and now it's his office. So he walks in with a team of advisors, a whole giant entourage of bodyguards and translators. This is now suddenly I have to not be political, I have to be curious and I have to be an artist. So I spoke as an artist and I said, Mr. President, before I document this moment of history, I have a question to ask you. I said, as an artist, I was brought up by my mum and dad listening to the music of the Beatles. And I said, I'm interested to know if you ever listened to the Beatles. They translated to him. There were some confusing looks amongst his entourage. And then in Russian, after his mood dropped, he orders the two translators and all his advisors out of the room immediately. The bodyguard stayed. And then he turns to me in perfect English and he says, I love the Beatles. So I said, I didn't know you spoke English. He said, I speak perfect English. So I said, in that case, who is your favorite Beatle? He said, Paul. I said, what's your favorite song? Is it back in the USSR? Yeah, he did not like that very much at all. And he gave me this really harsh look and he said, no, my favorite song is yesterday. Think about it. 
And I thought about it. And I realized I'm being sent a subliminal message about the old days of power and authority through the words of a Paul McCartney song. I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why she had to go I don't know, she wouldn't say I said Now that cultural connection I had with him allowed me in and I ended up an inch and a half away from his nose as I took the picture. I could feel his cold breath on my hand as I focused the lens and that's how I got the truth. The truth is that my picture is the cold face of power and authority in Russia and then he performed power for me. I was told he liked that picture because it shows him as a strong tough nationalist but I have to tell you that I am very proud that my friends in the LGBTQ community in the human rights community who fight for women's rights in particular in Russia they have all adopted my picture and they use it as a banner to show everything that they believe is wrong with power and authority inside Russia and these are all communities that have been silenced especially recently and that's something you don't hear much about in the news, that there are many brave Russian people who care deeply that what's happening is fundamentally wrong and it must not be done in their name. But their voices have been crushed and I worry that people in the mainstream media around the world are, are just making sweeping statements that all Russians fundamentally support Putin's actions and they don't. So the LGBTQ community have done some incredible stuff with my picture. They photoshopped rouge onto his cheeks, the sort of Hitler moustache with the rainbow colours, little horns they put on him, and lots of really creative sort of street art things. And they circulate my picture online in, in connection with their, their value system. So I've been told recently that anyone who is caught in Russia circulating my picture in connection with people's rights will instantly go to jail. And my picture has now been labelled extremist material. Is that something that fills you with pride, I'd imagine? The interesting thing is, my job is to be curious. And because I was curious, I got close. And I gave the world an icon that is a true moment. It's only one five hundredth of a second. But because I tuned into his frequency temporarily, I tapped into who he really is. And I think it's really important that photographers and storytellers remind the world of what's happening and what's behind those actions. I always had this goal to try and help, in a small way, cure society's amnesia. And it's really important that when Putin is eventually gone, because all our world leaders eventually go, that's the cycle of life and power, um, that we look back and we use perhaps my picture as part of the process for remembering how things could go wrong. So I think it's important to always be curious and always ask unusual, difficult, sometimes, sometimes provocative questions 
because it's not a simple dictatorial cartoon. Putin is a strategist. He's a master strategist. He's waited for this moment to create chaos in the world, and he may not succeed. We don't know yet. But what we do know is that he's not to be underestimated. And you could say he's brought the world to his knees. He's got the whole world waiting for every move he's going to make. That's ultimate power, even if it means his demise. He had that moment of global power. How do you reflect on, I guess we talked about how the image has changed and taken on a life of its own almost in in that other people have adopted it, they've edited it. But how do you reflect on your meeting with him and him as a person was are your thoughts that you had at that time still hold true or do you think that Putin we now see on the world stage is perhaps a slightly different individual than the one you met you know you're asking one of the biggest questions and I think what you're saying is does power reveal or does power corrupt and that's something I've always been interested in I used to think it corrupts but I actually think it reveals I think something very dangerous happens when you are giving, given complete power and authority, when no one around you will dare say, you must not do this, this is a mistake. And I think when I've seen so many people reach the top of the power pyramid, when they are finally in that position, that's when you are seriously challenged as a human being because that's when you have to rely on your own moral compass because there is no one around you to guide you in terms of right and wrong. And it's really hard. Sometimes, I've had this conversation with Edward Snowden, sometimes the line, and this I'll quote Ed in this, I asked him, how do you know that what you did was right? I said, some of my friends think you're a villain and some of my friends think you're a hero. And Snowden turned to me and he said, the line between right and wrong is not always bright. And all of us will cross over that line. But what makes an honourable person is when you recognise that you have crossed over and you do everything in your power to bring yourself and the people around you back to the right side of history. Now, it's evident that what Putin has done is fundamentally wrong. Wrong with capital letters in a historical terms. But what's interesting is you can't help wondering whether this was always who he was. It's just that power has finally revealed. There was no, he reached such a high point of authority within Russia that no one could be there to, to correct his moral mistakes. But that's just me, I'm, I'm nothing. I don't represent a government. I don't have a corporation behind me. Most people at Davos are seriously powerful people who have one of those two things. And uh, I have none of it. I do actually think that we're here, you know, you're an artist and we're here talking to you about one of the, the biggest problems of our time right now. And this is based off of your work and the impact that that has had and continues to have. And maybe bringing this full circle almost and going back to to your discussion earlier today. But does this not demonstrate the value of culture? And I guess why people really need to ensure that after these last few years that it's not left on its knees and that it's, you know, it helped back up to where it was and to continue to thrive. You know, it's amazing really how you have all these politicians, you have all these companies that have data, information. Talk about climate change, for instance. One of the biggest challenges is always 
how to persuade people to think differently. It's the art of persuasion. It's about storytelling. Numbers alone don't move people. Numbers mean nothing without a story. Numbers tell you how many. Emotions tell you what to do. That concept of the importance of storytelling and tapping into the human condition, as with everything with the human condition, it can be used for doing great things and terrible things. Donald Trump understood the power of storytelling. He did not emphasize the importance of data and information. He was more concerned with emotion and tapping in to how people feel. And he manipulated that, you could say, very, very successfully. So everything that we talk about can always be used on both sides of the spectrum of the human condition. And that's who we are as people. We try to be better all the time. And sometimes we fail, sometimes we slip, but we try to correct ourselves as best we can if we are trying to be a better person. So my job in the world is pretty clear. My job is to be a cultural provocateur. So I'd like to end with a little story about one of my all-time heroes, Muhammad Ali. So I had the great privilege to spend a day with him in his house. And he was very ill at that time. And I think it was one of the last photo shoots he ever did before he passed away. So I said to him at the end of the session, I said, Muhammad, you are the greatest. Teach me to be great. How can my generation be as great as your generation had to be during the civil rights era in America? And he couldn't speak very well because of Parkinson's. So I had to get very close to him and he whispered in my ear. He said, I have a confession to make. I said, what is it? He said, I wasn't as great as I said I was. Holy shit, I said. I screamed out aloud in the house. I said, that's the biggest confession I ever heard in my life because the whole world knows you as Ali the greatest. And then he gave me this stern look and he said, you misunderstand me. He said, I'll tell you what was great. It wasn't me. It was that people saw themselves in my struggle, that people saw themselves in my story. And then he turned it to me. And now I have the great honor and privilege to turn it to your listeners directly and say, if you can get people to see themselves in the stories that you put forward, then you have a chance of achieving greatness. But that greatness is never you personally. That's something much bigger called bridge building. A light bulb went off in my brain when he told me that. So we've got to find a way to come back together. You've got very powerful forces pulling us all apart right now. Social media, you've got politics, you've even had COVID, which is a physical separation. And outrage is always much more stimulating and it's a quick fix, but it leaves us feeling exhausted, our nerves afraid, and we've become less and less curious about each other. We don't know who our neighbours are and we're frightened of asking in case they disagree with us. And I think there is a beautiful frequency, a shared experience that we all can belong to. I met this little girl. Her name is Naomi Wadler. She's a young black girl, and she's a student activist in America. And she fights for the rights of black girls. And I invited her and her mum to my studio to do a portrait of Naomi as a future leader. And I said to her, can you tell me about a bit of the gridlock we are all facing as grown-ups right now in society, this 
paralysis we were going through. No one's, no one's connecting anymore. And she said something amazing. She said, talk with people, don't talk at them. She said, listen to them, don't just hear them. And then I said, how can I, a privileged, white, middle-aged man, be of service to your cause? And she looked directly into my eyes and she said, oh, that's easy. Stand with us, but not in front of us. There, my friend, is the perfect rule book for navigating a future path through this troubled society. I'm an optimist. People want to belong to something. They will come back together. History always corrects itself. But we're going to have to be resilient. We're going to have to be curious and caring about each other. And we're going to have to make some big changes in how society functions. But listen to the people on the street and they will tell you what we need to do. That was the world-renowned photographer, Platon, speaking to me at the World Economic Forum in Davos. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. Playing us out today is the popular Beatles song, Yesterday, performed by Vladimir Putin's favourite Beatle, Paul McCartney. From me, Charlie Filmercourt, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. I said something wrong now I long for yesterday yesterday Love was such an easy game to play Now I need a place to hide away Oh I believe in yesterday